So good morning, y'all. My name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail, and I'm, I am thankful that y'all are here today. And I'm not going to respond to the darts that just got thrown at me. I'm just going to preach the word of God because that's the kind of the way I roll. So <laughs> Although I can feel the top of my head turning red. Um, let me say one little thing about the announce. The, one of one of the announcements, the the Life Mark movie. We thought that the, um, that the tickets would be available online already today. They'll, it'll be one day this week, so just keep checking back. But, y'all, that is probably the most powerful movie I've ever seen in my life. So make plans to, to attend, hopefully, with us on uh, September the 9th at 7 o'clock. <clears throat> so we are getting close to the midterm elections. We're a few months away from the midterm elections, and... And there is a, a fierce battle that is being waged to win the votes uh, of Americans. Democrats and Republicans both, they blitz social media, blitz the television, blitz the web, you know, buying ads all over Google, um, snail mail, what, any other medium that they can get to to get in front of you, to get the message in front of people <clears throat> in an attempt to get you to vote for their respective party. Pundits, spinmeisters, they do every single thing they can to, to, to let voters know where they stand, where their particular candidate stands. There's signs, there's posters, there's billboards, there's bumper stickers, there's little placards that people put in their, in their front yard to get the candidate's name in plain view of any, as many minds and as many eyes and as many hearts maybe as possible. So whether it's in a a beauty shop or in the foyer of, a, of some church, the discussion is always thick about the pros and the cons of, of each candidate. And y'all, there's, there's a commitment to a party, there's a commitment to a, to a man or woman, there's a commitment to a philosophy that is pretty clear by the intent of the efforts to persuade people, to persuade you and I to one side or the other. Now, as important as the American political process is, it is nothing compared to the spiritual conflict that we're in. The spiritual conflict that we're in, there's two opposing <clears throat> sides, two opposing positions, two opposing kingdoms. And when I say opposing kingdoms, I mean total polar opposite kingdoms in battle. And Christians are called to be unashamed of our representative, unashamed of our spokesman. His name is Jesus Christ. And so your vote should be clear. There ought to not be any doubt over who has it. If you name the name of Jesus, somebody else other than you ought to know about it. If you claim the name, if you claim to be saved, then somebody other than you ought to know about it. And you're going to see an image of that in a baptism today. Because there's nothing salvific that happens in that water. There's nothing that causes salvation in that water over there. It's a public declaration of a change inside. I'm for Jesus. That's what the baptism is all about. And so, look, God is, he has called each one of his children to be public spokespersons, maybe the, the press secretary, if you will, for the king of kings and, and for his kingdom. 
with the goal, at the end of the day, with the goal of winning people over. We ought to be unwavering as Christ followers in our purpose of calling people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, out of the dark and into the light. We ought to be cities on a hill shining bright. That's what we're called to be, and that's what we're called to do. And that process is called evangelism. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about evangelism. And we're going to be, we're walking through the book of Acts. We have been for several months. We're in chapter 16. We're going to be in the first five verses of chapter 16. It's the, the Paul's second missionary journey is really getting kicked off now. And we may glance today a little bit back at the latter part of chapter 15. But we're going to be focused on evangelism. We're going to be focused on the, on the pillars, on the foundational principles of evangelism when it's done right. And, and when I say when it's done right, I mean when it's done the way that this book says to do it, when it's done per Scripture. I think there's several principles, and there's maybe more than what I'm going to talk about today, but I'm going to talk about four or five. Evangelism, when it's done right, it calls for the right passion, the appropriate passion. It calls for the right people. It calls for the right preparation. It calls for the right message, the perfect message. And then it calls for me and you to have the right priority. And those are the four or five things that I want to talk about. So the first thing today is, is passion, having the right passion. And if you don't have one of these little worship guides, please get your hand. We don't have any more. Like I said, if you don't have one of these, steal it from the person sitting next to you or something. Cheat with somebody on theirs. Run up here and grab mine or something. But you got some fill-in-the-blanks in, uh, in the worship guide. And so the first thing I, I do, I want to talk about passion, the right passion. The, the, and when I say the right passion, it's the, it's the right why. Because, y'all, the why it matters. The why we do things, why we believe, why we're passionate, it matters. You know, this mission trip that was launched by Paul, this second mission trip, it was launched out of a passion for the lost, as was the first mission trip, and as was the third mission trip, and as is every mission trip between that and us today, launched out of a passion for the lost. Paul desperately wanted to, to reach people. And they're coming out of Antioch of Syria, the church there commissioned them, and, the church, and when they were at the church in Antioch, we talked about this a little bit last week, they had trained up other folks. The scripture says they had trained up other people to teach and preach the word. And, what, and that afforded Paul the opportunity to go do what he was passionate about, and that was go out on another mission trip. So he is driven by a desire to communicate Christ. He was crazy motivated. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and 5. They tell us that he was, he was motivated because of the mind-blowing mercy that God had given him. He's overwhelmed and shocked by the mercy. James, this morning, talked a little bit about lamentation. The verse he was talking about, or verse is, we're in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, and he said it. God has new mercy every day. Paul was overwhelmed with the fact that, that, that God has new mercy every day. He can't even believe that he's saved. And Paul knew that, that, that if a man, any man is in Christ, then that man or that woman is a new creation. 
a new creation. That's, that's what happens to a heart that is transformed, to a mind that is renewed. And that drove Paul. That moved him. He talked about the fact that, that he knew in, 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 in uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, he knew that the day was going to come at some point that he would stand before Christ as judge, and that drove him. Y'all, and that, that moved him with, with incredible passion. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He says it in Romans chapter 1. Well, why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation. And Paul was blown away by God's mercy and God's justice and God's grace and God's redemption and God's reconciliation. And all of that just drove his passion. It fueled his passion. He's constantly thinking about the lost. And he's thinking if he doesn't preach Christ, if he doesn't preach the risen Christ, then the people who need to hear it wouldn't hear it. And that's a problem. And in transparency, y'all, it makes me wake up every morning. Now, that may sound weird, and it may be putting too much on my own little shoulders, but it drives me every day that somebody needs to hear that the grave is empty. And I pray every day that God would just cross one person's path with mine, and I can share Jesus with that person. It, it, it drives every thought that I have. When Paul saw an ocean, he didn't see the water. He just saw an obstacle between him and somebody that needed Jesus, and he'd figure out a way to get on a boat and go across it or swim across it or, or something. When he sees a mountain, he doesn't see uh, uh, rocks and dirt and trees. No, he sees an obstacle between him and somebody on the other side that needs Jesus and he's got to figure out a way to go through it, around it, or over the top of it. He's passionate about it. Eaten up with a passion for evangelism. And y'all, the only way that you and I will ever, ever know that kind of passion is when we are so connected to the person of Jesus Christ. So connected that he loves through us when we know him in a deep, intimate, personal way and we're just connected. In Philippians, Philippians is such a beautiful letter that Paul wrote. In chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul writes this. He says, I think it's going to be on the screen. Yeah. He says, I count everything as loss. Like everything in my life, I count it all as loss. Because of the, the, the amazing worth and the value of knowing, of just knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else. He says, for this sake, I, I suffer the loss of everything, and I could, couldn't care any less about everything because I count all that stuff as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. And what does that mean, gain Christ? That I may just grow in my relationship with him. And he can just work through me. Real passion, again, it comes from when, when our spirit is so entangled and so enmeshed and so connected with the spirit of Christ that it's Jesus who is passionate through us. Well, how does that happen? 2,000 years removed from the cross, how does it happen? Well, I believe it happens through prayer and through diving into his word. Y'all, if you want to gaze upon the very face of God, 
gaze into his word. He will meet you there. His word. This is nobody's word other than his. You want to see him? You want to hear him? Gaze into his word. He meets you there. When you're by yourself in a, in a sweet, intimate time of prayer, he will meet you there. He, will, he promises to never forsake you. He will meet you in his word. He will meet you in times of prayer. And you know, there's, there's lots of evangelism training that you can do. There's lots of little tracks that you can buy online. And there's a little thing called an evangelism cube. Has ever, anybody ever seen that? It's like a Rubik's cube, little evangelism thing. There's this method. There's that method. There's go to this class and go to that class. But the very, very best training, the very best training that results in the right passion is just becoming so immersed in the person of Jesus Christ through prayer and his word. And when that happens and the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, then his love just works through your hands, passionate hands. His love just works through your feet. His love just works through your heart, through your mind. That passion undergirds all of it. And it undergirds all of it because it's born out of a deep, intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. Do y'all see how almost crazy it is that you and I, as little finite human, human beings, here for a little blip of time, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, we get to have a relationship with the one that hung every star and planet up there just where he wanted. It's mind-blowing. And he cares about us, deeply cares about us. So evangelism, when it's done right, has the right passion, and the passion is born out of that relationship with the Lord, number one. Number two, when it's done right, it's... It's got the right people involved. Last week, we saw God trade Barnabas for Silas and a player to be named later. No, he, he, he didn't really trade Barnabas for Silas, but they kind of swapped. And what ended up, if you remember, what, what happened is God launched two mission teams where there was just going to be one. Barnabas and John Mark went kind of southwest. And Paul and Silas went a little north and a little east. Y'all, God calls special people for special tasks. He puts the right people, connects them together at the right time in the right place to get done what he wants to get done. He's sovereign, and he's got a plan, and it began before the foundation of the world. And he puts the people together to get it all done. And now he's tweaking his team a little bit. Look at... At Acts 16, look at verse 1 and 2. Luke writes, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and at Iconium. So God is getting everything together to get just the right team in place for this operation that he's planned. It's just amazing how the Holy Spirit works, how the Holy Spirit moves and operates. So Paul and Silas, after they went 
over to Paul's home turf going northeast. Then they move and they start heading west. They go to Derby and then they go to Lystra. And they're coming from the east, they're heading west. They get to Derby first and Lystra is about 50 miles west of Derby and then Iconium is about 20 or so miles north of that. And we don't really know which of those it makes this little triangle. We don't really know which of those cities necessarily that Timothy is from. We just know Timothy is from that area. So the guys get there. Paul, Silas, they get there. They meet this dude named Timothy. Verse 1 says that he was the son of a Jewish woman who is a Christ follower. And we know from Paul's second letter that he writes to Timothy later on in Scripture, we know that Timothy's mama's name was Eunice and that his grandmama's name was Lois. But verse 1 here tells us that his dad was a Gentile and that he wasn't a believer. So mama and grandmama, Jewish Christ followers, daddy is Greek and he is an unbeliever. And we really think at this time that, that Timothy's dad had already passed away. But in my little simple mind, Timothy is the perfect guy because he's half Gentile, he's half Jew, he's from the Roman Empire, he's got an in with the Gentiles, he's potentially got an in with the Jews, and it looks like God may actually know what he's doing when he's setting all this up. Timothy's a young guy, we're not exactly sure, probably between 18 and 22 years old. He'd have maybe been 13 or 14, maybe 15 when Paul comes through here on his first journey, which was three, four, five, maybe six years earlier. Some folks believe that Paul led Timothy to Christ on that first mission trip. I kind of used to think that, but in digging in and studying Scripture, I, I don't think so. I don't think Paul did it. I think it's much more likely that Mama and Grandmama did, that Eunice and Lois led Timothy to the cross. Second Timothy Chapter 1 and verse 5. Again, Paul writing years later to Timothy. He says, I am reminded of your sincere, this is Paul writing to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in Grandmama Lois and Mama Eunice, and now I am sure. It's like Paul saying, there ain't no doubt. I've seen you. I've walked with you. There is no doubt that faith is dwelling in you. And then verse 2 also tells us that Timothy was highly regarded, chapter 16, verse 2 of Acts, highly regarded by the folks in this area, very well thought of, great reputation with all the people in Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. And so in orchestrating the right people, that's an important issue to, to select folks because God's doing the picking and the choosing to select folks that have good reputation, that are highly thought of. And so with that said, verse 3 of chapter 16, it begins with Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. There's no doubt Paul bathed it in prayer. There's no doubt that Paul knew that God had directed their movements and got them back there at the right time to have this conversation with Timothy and grandmama and mama. So Paul wants Timothy to join his little band of missionaries. If you look back at Acts chapter 14, you're going to find that the last time Paul was in this area, which was on that first trip, the last time that Paul was in Derby and Lystra and Iconium, the last time that Grandmama and Mama saw him, he was about dead, bloody, 
been beat up, stoned, pummeled with rocks, drug out of the city gates and laying there, they thought, to die. Well, that's the last time that mom and grandmama saw him. And now he says, oh, and I'm the one that wants to take your son and your grandson off with me. How, do you, how good do you feel about that? You feel okay with that? Well, they may not have known necessarily what was going to happen, but they trusted the Lord and they, they said, okay. First Timothy chapter 4, again, years later, when Paul writes this letter to Timothy in verse 14, it tells us that the elders in the church there in that little region, they laid hands on Paul and Timothy and Silas, prayed over them, laid hands on them, and commissioned them out. And so this team is beginning to fill out with those three. And y'all, Timothy's life is a perfect example of the priority of evangelism. We'll get a little more into priority in a second, but Timothy's not a first-generation believer. He's not a second-generation believer. You got his grandma, and then you got his mom, and then you got him. And when you and I can win somebody to the Lord, when we can lead somebody to the cross, there is a very real tendency for that to snowball and they grow, and then they lead somebody, and then that person grows, and then they lead somebody, and then they grow, and then they lead somebody, and it goes on and on and on. Y'all, that's evangelism. So to do it right, you got to have the right passion, the right why. you got to have the right people in place. you got to trust that God is orchestrating all of it. And then when it's done right, you got to have the right preparation. Look at, look at the rest of verse 3. It says Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. But then it says, and he took him, Paul took Timothy, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. I don't want to make too big a deal out of this, but some scholars have argued that, that Paul had just delivered this proclamation that said, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And that is true, for sure, you don't. Well, then why did he circumcise Timothy? Well, he read the room. He read the room. He knew who his audience was. He knew who the people were that, uh, that he was going to minister to. He knew who the people were that he was going to try to lead to Christ. So he did not circumcise Timothy like somehow into salvation. Verse 3 says he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. It was because of them. Timothy's Mixed heritage, mama being a Jew and, and, and daddy being a Gentile, a Greek Gentile, that gives him unique access for sharing Christ with both groups of people. And the Jews that they're going to share with, they expected Timothy to be circumcised because mama is Jewish. And for a child, a child born of a Jewish mama, doesn't matter what the dad is, that child is considered Jewish. If it's a Jewish dad and a, and a Gentile mama, that child is not considered Jewish. And so Mama Eunice is Jewish. They expected Timothy to be circumcised. If he'd remained uncircumcised, it would have been like renouncing his Jewish heritage and would overtly offend the sensitivities of the Jews that they're trying to share Christ with. In other words, it would have wrecked his witness he would have been a stumbling block for all those people. Well, was he free to, to remain uncircumcised? Of course he was. Of course he was. But here's a big point. Timothy and Paul, 
often set aside their personal liberty, their personal freedom, in order to remove any doubt about their testimony. This circumcision was unrelated to salvation. This circumcision was unrelated to somehow being obedient uh, as a a Christian. He was circumcised so that the Lord could use him more effectively as a missionary. That's the point. He was circumcised so the Lord could use him more effectively as a missionary. Was he free to not be circumcised? Sure. And then the Lord was free to not use him as a missionary. That's, there's lots of stuff in our lives, y'all. There are times when you and I need to do this or that that we may not be so comfortable with so that the Lord can use us. And I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about doing anything short of sin to lead somebody to Christ. That's the point. Things that we may be free to do, but we're not going to do it. Because I don't want to be a stumbling block for somebody. And Paul goes on when he writes one of the letters to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. He kind of puts it out there in black and white. He says, to the Jews I became a Jew. Why? In order to win Jews. He says, to those under the law I became as one under the law. Why? To win those under the law. For those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law to win those that are outside of the law. To those who are weak, I became weak to try to win the weak. He said, I became all things to all people. Just so that by some means, somehow or the other, some of them will be one. Well, why, 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 why? Why does he do all that? Look at verse 23. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of, of Christ. So Timothy had to be prepared, and he definitely couldn't prepare himself himself. Not in the way that he was prepared. Do y'all get that? The joker's like 18, 19 years old. I don't think he could prepare himself himself. Here's the principle. You and I, we need to always be prepared. In our world, and it's all about relationships. And I've found relational evangelism, and I don't even know if that's a real term, but relational evangelism is incredibly effective. The verses that we just read in in 1 Corinthians, they're all about relational evangelism. Being in relationship with folks. Walking life, doing life with folks. Letting them know you care. Being genuine. Being authentic. You know, when we're out in the streets, ministering in the streets, the only reason we have a right to speak Jesus into somebody's life is because we are there all the time and we are in relationship with folks. You got a right to speak Jesus when you're in a relationship with somebody. Just simply being there with folks, ultimately, that'll allow you, it'll afford you the opportunity and the right to have a Jesus conversation. We've got to be prepared. And then the next principle we have in in evangelism, when it's done right, is we've got to have the right message. Look at verse 4 of Acts 16. It says, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them. This is uh, Paul and, and Silas and Timothy. They delivered to them for observance 
the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. What decisions is Luke talking about here? He's talking about the letter from the Jerusalem council and what they decided. You got to go back again to chapter 15. The message of that letter is that externals don't save. Should there be external manifestations of an internal change? Y'all answer that question. Absolutely there should be. But do the externals cause salvation? Absolutely they don't. And so the letter was externals don't save. We believe that it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. Salvation is by grace through faith. Remember now, this letter also said they got to stay away from things that were strangled. They got to stay away from food that had been sacrificed to idols. They, had to, they needed to stay away from uh, sexual immorality. They needed to stay away from blood. And if you remember, the why of that decision was so that, so that they don't offend certain people. And by that I mean like the food sacrificed to idols. Are you free to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Of course you are. It's not what goes in your mouth that makes you unclean. But if my friend over here has come out of an idol-worshiping um, world into being a Christ follower, I'm not going to serve a pig steak for dinner. Does that make sense? If I know that my friend over here has struggled, and I've used this example before, but has struggled with alcohol for 25 years, he's been sober for a year and a half. When he comes over to your house for dinner, don't serve a bottle of wine. All that, te- all that says is you love the freedom to have your wine more than you love your friend. Don't do that. That's the point. So this message then, then, is the same message as it is in 2022, a couple thousand years later. It's a twofold message. Number one, and don't miss this, number one and the huge principle is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. Period. That ought to get a thousand amens, y'all. That is the way that salvation works. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And second is, is really the manifestation of that grace and your faith and Christ's work on the cross is living a life of love, loving your neighbor as yourself. Walk in the talk that comes out of your mouth. The result of salvation is living a life of love. That's the right message. That's the message that we ought to be screaming from a mountaintop. So we've said that, that evangelism, when it's done right, it, it calls for the right passion. It calls for the right people. It calls for being prepared correctly. And then it calls for the right message. And finally, it calls for the right priority. Look at verse 5. It says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Even look back at verse 36 of chapter 15, because these are super related. It says, let us return and visit the brothers. This is Paul and Barnabas at that time in chapter 15. It says, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and let's see how they're doing. So the churches were strengthened in their faith because the guys went back there and poured life into the believers that are there. Our idea, our concept, our viewpoint maybe of of an evangelist, it may not quite be right because I think sometimes that, that we 
we think of an evangelist almost like a, like a traveling salesman, that he goes in and he makes the sale and then he turns it over to the service department or something. Well, that's not really necessarily the biblical image, the biblical picture of an evangelist. We may think of him as a guy that, as a guy that busts down the door, leads a bunch of people to the cross, leads them uh, into a saving relationship with the Lord, and, and then, and then leaves, leaves them there for some other Christians to follow up with. Well, that's not really the way it was, and that's not really the way that it should be. Paul saw his responsibility to be much greater than that. Winning people to the Lord, of course, man, a million, million percent. You can't, uh, you can't make a disciple out of a lost person. So you got, we got to lead them to the, to the Lord first, but, but also to, to work to help them mature, to help them grow spiritually, to build them up. Y'all, that's what we do. It's what we do. So a major component of evangelism when it's done right is that we really love the individual that we have led to Christ to the point where we feel a huge responsibility to help them grow. A huge responsibility to help them grow. Not that it would just be, hey, I led this person to Christ. When's the last time you talked with them? Well, I led them to Christ about three years ago. I hadn't talked to them since. No, that's not what we're called to do. It's to love them enough really to love them so much that we pour into them. This letter to the church at Philippi that I shared with you a minute ago, jump back to the beginning of that letter. Paul writing to the folks in the church at Philippi in the book called, the letter, the book called Philippians. He loved these people, Paul did. Here's what he writes at the beginning of chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, when I think about you, when I remember y'all, I'm just so thankful to the Lord that he crossed our paths. I'm just so thankful. Every prayer, I pray for y'all all the time. I'm joyful because when I think about you, I remember just how much I cared about you. He says, we were partners in the gospel from the very beginning of all this. He says, and I'm sure, all of y'all, he said, I'm sure that that the Jesus that saved you, that the Lord that worked, that began to work in you, he's still working. He's still growing you. He said, and it's just the coolest thing to see. And he says, it's right for me to feel like this because you got a special place in my heart. We are partakers in the Lord's grace together. And he says, as God is my witness I yearn to be with y'all. I love y'all with all the affection in Christ Jesus. This book, Philippians, is full of joy and full of, of the right kind of heart after you lead somebody to Christ. So as Paul, he, he revisits these places where he's been on, on, at the end of the first mission trip and the second and then again in the third, he begins writing letters to these churches because number one because he loves them because he loves them and number two because he was committed to discipleship y'all he was committed to discipleship you know we're we're commanded by the Lord to make disciples and the best way to make disciples is to make disciple makers that's the best way to make disciples and Paul realized early on that running around and and leading people to Christ and then leaving them drinking milk 
which is a biblical sort of way, a churchy sort of way to say just uh, leaving them kind of immature, Paul realized early on that, that that didn't work. That wasn't the right way to do it. He realized that pouring yourself into some individuals that very well may become mature and carry on the gospel, having people to hand the baton to, to, to hand the torch to, that that was doing this right. Look at Jesus. His model is perfect. He spent virtually most of his time with about a dozen guys and arguably with three out of the dozen, pouring himself into them and handing ultimately handing the baton to them to go out and change the world. That's the core of evangelism, being committed to maturing believers. Paul knew at the end of the day the most effective way to evangelize is to reproduce reproducing Christ followers. And to reproduce a reproducing Christ follower, you've got to pour yourself into that individual. Let me give you my opinion as we get close to being done here. Let me... Let me it's just my opinion on this. In the long run, the all-in, full-on, consistent, faithful teaching efforts of a church will have a greater evangelistic effect than anything else a local church could do. Now hear that again. The all-in, consistent, faithful teaching efforts of a church are going to have a greater evangelistic effect than anything else we could do. That doesn't negate going out in the streets because if we're teaching right, you're going to be out in the streets more. It doesn't negate sharing the gospel with the dude in the cubicle next to you at work because if we're teaching right, you're going to share it with one on both sides of you at work, right? But it's got to begin with, a, with an all-out teaching and preaching effort of the gospel, of Jesus, not of a bunch of feel-good stuff, now, nothing should make us feel better than knowing that the God of the universe wants to be in a relationship with us. So that's what we do. You know, at the end of Colossians 1, Paul, he kind of talks about this. He says that it is Jesus that we scream from the mountaintops, warning everybody and teaching everybody with wisdom. Well, why do we scream Jesus from the mountaintop? It's so that we can present them mature in Christ. He's like, don't you know? He's telling the, the, the folks in, in the church there in Colossians. He says, don't you know this is why I work so hard every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year. This is I'm doing the very best that I can with what God has so generously given me that I totally didn't deserve. But it's to help people grow in Christ. Y'all, that is that, just frankly, that is me. I'm so inadequate, but whatever little bit that God has given me, I want to work every breathing moment, day of my life to help lead people who don't know Christ into a relationship with Him and to help people that do know Him to grow. And we do that together, y'all. We do it together. And y'all, you know, it's, I said it before, and I think it's the most important thing of everything I said today, is that the way it happens is when we are so enmeshed in Jesus, when we are 
when he just engulfs our thoughts and, he, and his heart is intertwined with, with our heart. And the Holy Spirit is just indwelling us. And love is what comes out of that. That's the way it happens. And it's so cool to see this guy named Paul who is clearly so passionate about leading people into a saving relationship with Christ is also the same guy who is so passionate about discipleship and growth. And you could really easily see that, that it may get on his nerves to hang around people that are spiritually immature, babes in Christ maybe. But he was sensitive enough, sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit and he was in love enough with the Jesus that saved him to understand the priority of reproducing, reproducing Christians. Y'all, in our little church family, we do that in connect groups. We do it in connect groups. Going to be launching several new connect groups, and, and, and lots of connect groups that we have are just kind of ongoing groups. We'll be launching, and there's some new ones already on the website, but really at the beginning of September. And it's, you can go to the Connect tab uh, on, the, on our website to see those. Sometime, probably in the next couple of weeks, there'll be a printed guide uh, that just out of, the, out of the welcome desk with all the different Connect groups that we have. And y'all, I, I cannot implore you enough. Like, I want you to come to church on Sunday. Like, I... I totally do, of course. But this can't be all that you get because this is very one way. Y'all say amen every now and again. But this is one way. But when you're in a connect group and you got 8 or 10 or 12 people and you're just sharing life together and you're doing life together and you're talking about Jesus together, whether the the venue is, or the genre of the connect group is learning, clipping coupons, or whether it's a deep Bible study in the book of the Revelation, whatever it is, it's all under the umbrella and the lordship of Christ. I cannot implore y'all enough to connect yourself to a group. And if you can't be at the first one, don't let the devil get in your ear and say, well, I missed the first one. I guess they don't want, I'm not going to go. Don't do that. If it's a, if it's a Bible study, Bible's still going to be there. And if you're in my Bible study, we probably only went over half a verse anyway. But, but, but what I'm saying is don't let, don't let the devil deceive you and talk you out of connecting in a group. Even if you go to a group where you, where you, where you don't even really know anybody. Get together with folks. There's a question in the table talk, and we always have in the, in the uh, worship guides, there's always, usually on the back of it, there's a little table talk, which is kind of intended to get you talking around the table at home or wherever, at a coffee shop, I don't know. But one of those questions is the first one. Yeah, the very first one. I ask you the question, are you moving towards becoming a disciple maker? Are you moving towards becoming a reproducing Christian? If so, why and how? And if not, well, why not? Because Jesus' last words, go make disciples. 
go make disciples. And if you, as a follower, are going and making disciples or working towards going and making disciples, then you are moving towards becoming a disciple maker. And that's what he has for us to do. It doesn't take a seminary degree. Y'all, it doesn't take a, a, a bachelor's degree. It don't take a high school diploma. It takes immersing yourself in Jesus. And he will equip those that he calls. When my friends have said, I'm not qualified to lead a connect group, I say, it's a lie from hell. The devil will get in your ears and tell you that. You're not qualified. But if God calls you to do something, he's not going to leave you unequipped to do what he calls you to do. Do y'all get that? And if you, I'm going to say this, if you have any in something inside of you says, I think I've really wanted to study, you know, the book of Lamentations. James, I don't know that anybody studies the book of Lamentations, but, but if he's led you to do that and you feel nudged to do that, there's no better way to learn a book than by teaching it to people and facil- facilitating a, a, a connect group with it. So if, you, if that's something you want to do, let's do it. Call me. Call Lonnie. Lonnie's our elder that's kind of over discipleship. Let us know. And that's talking about leading a group, but I'm talking about get plugged in somewhere to the body. So, let me say this. I've gone on and on today about being connected and and entangled and enmeshed with Christ. It doesn't happen unless there's new birth you're not a new creation until you're a new creation the Bible says you are dead dead not sick the Bible says that you are dead in your trespasses praise the Lord that you don't have to stay dead you can become a new creation and so that's a response to the message today another response to the message today may be get connected in a group but if you, if your spirit is not entangled, enmeshed with Christ, don't go to sleep tonight without considering that option. And it's very simple. I repent. Turn away from the sin best as you can. You turn away from it and you turn to, towards the Lord. And you believe because your sin's going to get paid for somehow or the other. And you can make the choice to allow that death on the cross 2,000 years ago to take care of that sin, to pay the cost, to pay the penalty for that. And you believe, you confess that, and you believe that Jesus walked out of a grave alive, that he went in absolutely dead, and he walked out absolutely alive. And you and I, because of that, we get to live for eternity with the creator of the universe. Y'all, that is the very best deal that has ever existed in the history of the world. Y'all pray with me. Lord, my prayer is that somebody hearing my voice today that doesn't know you will very simply turn away from their sin and turn towards you, that they will confess with their mouth that you are the Lord. They would confess with their mouth that you died and you took care of their sin, and they would believe absolutely that you walked out of the grave alive. 
And Lord, that they would cry out in this moment to be saved. And we know and we trust that you have never said no to someone that asked that question. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you for that grace. We thank you that you do have new mercy every day. Where would we be without it? So, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last thing I'll say, if you need prayer back in that back corner, we've got somebody that would love to pray with you. You're welcome at, right now after, after the, the service to head back that way. Find me, whatever. I do want you to hang around for, for a couple of minutes. We're going we're gonna to sing and worship the Lord through song, one more song, and then somebody's going to take what we call the God plunge, biblical baptism. I want us to stay and, and celebrate that with her and her family. Thanks. Thanks.